The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. opinion, I don't think that the majority of healthcare serial killers went into that profession with the intent of killing. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm bringing you one hell of an episode right now. Probably the most interesting conversation that I've ever been a part of. Talking about the author of the book Behind the Murder Curtain, Special Agent Bruce Sackman who tracked down and prosecuted medical serial killers, or MSKs, as they're called in the biz. Now, the average serial killer kills about six to ten people. The individuals, we're talking doctors and nurses, that Bruce Sackman prosecuted and investigated, killed between 60 and 100 people, sometimes more. It's hard to tell how many people that these individuals actually killed. The reason being... As Bruce Sackman explains, the medical industry is a perfect place to commit mass murder. And this is why the Nazis were doing things like this. Now, he does not compare the Nazis to these people that he prosecuted in no way, shape or form. Okay, Um, I know I, I knew right off the bat when him and I started talking that we did not see the world the same way at all. So I'm speaking for myself here. Um, the good news about this episode is you don't hear me talk hardly at all. Um, Bruce Sackman really goes with, uh, any, any kind of topic that you give him and he really kind of explains these medical serial killers in a very interesting way because he spent his career really, you know, diving into these people again, investigating and prosecuting them. Now he wrote a book called behind the murder curtain. And I urge you to go online on Amazon. You can buy a softback for like 16 bucks, buy a hardback, which is what I have on the way for like $23, if I'm not mistaken. Um, He talks about these people that he went after. We're talking like Michael Swango. Um, There's a few others. I I don't want to give too much away here because it's just an incredible conversation. And he's so open about his work. Um, later in the episode, probably in the Patreon portion, actually, you'll hear me and him talk about, you know, Anthony Fauci a little bit. I ask him, 
if uh, if he thinks Anthony Fauci is one of these medical serial killers. You may or may not be surprised with his answer. Um, it's a very interesting time, though, for this. And I, I thought it was just so relevant when these vaccines are being mandated. Um, you know, this episode's coming out here on um, August 24th. And on August 23rd, we just had the Pfizer vaccine sort of rush through as in FDA approval. Now, if you're in this community, you probably think that the vaccines are killing a lot of people. I don't know. I don't know if they are or not. Um, I know that COVID, the first strain, was not killing many people. I do know that this second variant that they're calling the Delta is much more dangerous. It seems to really be more contagious and more lethal and uh, putting a lot more stress on people. I don't know what that says about Bruce Sackman's work, but it's a very interesting time. And I thought it was just like the stars aligned in my opinion for, you know, this episode and for this conversation to take place. Um, it just so happened. Like he's super busy for the next couple of weeks. Um, I reached out to him. He was able to talk the very next day after I talked, uh, after I, uh, after I hit him up on email and um, man, just an incredible dude, incredible dude. I do have to let you know, that I had a malfunction on my end with my own sound equipment. He sounds perfect, but I sound weird. Um, my microphone had some sort of weird thing going on, um, some, some setting in my computer. But like I said, he talks about 80% of the time. Um, you can still understand what I'm saying, but it's not the buttery smooth texture that's coming through right now in this intro. So just a forewarning, but you do not want to miss this conversation. And you absolutely want to check out his book, Behind the Murder Curtain, you can check out his website as well, where they have a tab at the top where you can see current and newly found MSKs, these medical serial killers. And you can, I mean, there was one dude in Germany that killed like 96 patients. Um, there was the, the, the lady in uh, Italy that was injecting bleach and she was just killing people that annoyed her or the families were annoying. I mean, imagine that. You know what I mean? This is why people don't trust the medical system. And maybe the news perpetuates this stuff, right? But it's terrifying and it's scary. Um, I think that that uh, there is something to be said about the boards that allow these people to slip through the cracks. As um, Special Agent Bruce Sackman describes here, there's no reason that, that Michael Swango, who is his most... Um, I would say trophied takedown, in my opinion. That's my words, not his. Um, this guy should not have been practicing medicine at all. Um, but he got through. You know, he's an ex-Marine. And um, why would an ex-Marine want to kill veterans in the VA? Just seems weird, right? Um, but yeah, I, I hope that you guys enjoy this episode, like even half as much as I did just having the conversation. Incredible. So uh, with that being said, guys, Patreon subscribers, you guys make my fucking lunch, okay? I love you guys so much. Um, you guys support the show, whether it's 3 5 or $10. You make this show happen, 100%. Dangerous World on Patreon.com. So it's just Patreon.com slash Dangerous World. Um, I got the Ryan's Rants. I just talked about Afghanistan a lot. I talked about the Hyde uh, um, systems that they had, H-I-I-D-E, if you want to look that up. Um, I break that down and I also talk about Havana syndrome just because it tied in so well with the last mind control episode four that I did. 
Um, episode five is coming out on uh, Friday, and I am already excited about that one. Not as excited about this, to be clear, um, but I, I found some pretty interesting shit that has to tie in with Delta again. So um, that'll be out on Friday, guys. But I appreciate what you do over there um uh, patreon.com slash dangerous world the website if you are interested in getting a shirt all of them are 17 dollars and 76 cents that's a good year for this country 1776 baby uh dangerousworldstore.com that government is the virus shirt is slaying the 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 pussies are getting wet the panties are hitting the ground so hard that the seismograph goes off okay you, you know women want these alpha dudes they don't want these cucks they don't want the guys that are wanting to double mask up. They like the beards. Women like beards and they like dad bodies. You know what I'm saying? I know for a fact. I know. So like put on some weight, start eating some cheeseburgers, but make sure you take your vitamins and your zinc and stuff because this Delta variants fucking shit up. Um, so maybe just disregard everything that I just said uh, other than the plugs. Okay. Um, also manscaped. Danger is your is your uh, promo code over there for 20% off and free shipping. You're going to be hearing me talk about them more uh, next month, uh, but I will plug them every episode because they're awesome, man. Manscaped is a great company, and they support the show, and they support free speech as of right now, right? We'll see. We'll see in the future. But uh, no, they're awesome, man. I love Manscaped. So, guys, enjoy this conversation with Behind the Murder Curtain author, Special Agent Bruce Sackman incredible guy and i think that you guys are really in for a treat here share this episode man um if you don't subscribe or you don't do anything else for me share this episode um i'm fucking working my ass off trying to get these episodes better and better for you guys i hope you appreciate them but i i would hope that this is an important issue for everybody right Someone that took the time and took a career, not not just because he's getting paid. This dude is retired, but he's still part of the the medical system. He set up something called like red flag laws. You'll hear about all this stuff uh, in the episode, but he's still very active in the community of uh, tracking down these scumbags that kill veterans, especially, but just kill innocent people that go in for treatment and go in to be healed. But then they're fucking killed. It's disgusting. And thank God for people like Special Agent Bruce Sackman here that do these great, you know, noble, noble acts uh, just to make us a little safer, man. So uh, spread the word on this episode, guys. Thank you very much. Enjoy it. And I'll see you in a couple days. Very rarely when we think about serial killers, do we think about people in the in the medical profession. But if you think about it, they really have an opportunity to commit a very large number of murders. And unfortunately, a number of them have. And it's very interesting because I, you know, when I heard you speaking, um, it is one of those fields that could absolutely attract uh, a serial killer or someone that just is a sociopath in some way, shape or form. And that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you right away here was do you think that a lot of these individuals that that find themselves in these you know positions that where they just it seems get addicted to killing uh, helpless people do you think that they went into the medical field with the intention of doing so or do you think that they slip up one time accidentally kill someone and feel some sort of rush from that or is it not a one size fits all in in my opinion i don't think that the majority of healthcare serial killers went into that profession with the intent of killing, all right? 
I do think that what happened is that events overcame their personal life and professional life. And it's just something that they eventually, unfortunately, after they kill one or two people and they get an excitement from that and nobody questions the fact that they kill people, I think that's what leads them to continue killing and killing and killing. I don't think that the majority of medical serial killers said, hmm, let me see what, what profession I'm going to choose to kill people and decided <laughs> to go to the medical profession. However, however, if you think about it, if you think about it, if you are so inclined to commit a series of murders, what professions and what locations might you choose? Well, let's think about this for a minute, okay? First of all, you might want to choose a, uh, a location where death is a common everyday occurrence. You sure. know, somebody dies in, uh, in a hotel, in your classroom, at work or whatever, there's going to be a big investigation. It might even be in the media. But if somebody dies in a hospital or a nursing home, is that news? Well, that happens all day, every day, all right? So that would be a good location, if you think about it, to commit murders, okay? I mean, there are, there's a, a lot of things about a hospital and about that particular profession that if you think about, you might really want to choose it. Like, for instance, let's say... Let me choose a profession where I have the power of life and death over someone. Now, some serial killers, well, they've masqueraded themselves as police officers. Well, what other profession do we know have this power of life and death over someone? Mm. Certainly in the healthcare profession, right? Also, I would want to surround myself with people that take an oath to save lives, okay? Because nobody's going to think that I'm working in a group where everyone has dedicated themselves to saving lives, that I'm going to be the person to intentionally take lives. Now, what a great cover. Nobody thinks a fireman is going to start a fire and burn down the firehouse, all right? And nobody thinks that a medical professional who has taken an oath to protect lives, to save lives, is actually going to intentionally take lives. That'd be the last person we would ever suspect. You know, I might actually choose a profession where the victim and the family trust you implicitly. Listen to that nurse, sweetheart. Yeah. That doctor, they only have your best interest in mind. And of course, that's true. 99.9% of the time, they only have your best interest in mind. What about working somewhere where the, the strong and the assertive all of a sudden become the meek and mild? You ever go in an emergency room and see this really big construction worker terrified of this little nurse who's coming over with a big needle? Right? Yeah. And nobody asks any questions because you're not yourself. You're in a lot of pain. You just want to get better. So you just kind of put yourself in their hands and hope that they're doing the right thing for you. And of course, 99.9% of the time, they are doing the right thing for you. All right. Let's say we choose a profession where there's a real shortage of skilled workers and a willingness sometimes to overlook some past indiscretions. Now, look, if you're in a remote part of the world or even a remote part of the United States, it's very difficult to find doctors and nurses, all right? 
So you know what? If we overlook some of the things in their background, well, forgive me. We couldn't find a doctor. We couldn't find a nurse to work here, especially during a pandemic. My God. Yeah. here. Yeah, and COVID has has changed some some rules as far as you know the the families being able to go into the rooms. Uh, you know, there's minimal cameras around the hospital, especially in the areas where the people are being worked on. And to be clear, I, I did want to um, say something that you brought up the the Kevorkian idea. This is not that. This is not. Uh, this is not. You're not going after the individual doctors and nurses that are putting people out of their misery, so to speak. You're going after deliberate. Uh, serial killers, especially tied in with the VA hospital. So these people are killing veterans, uh, people that served our country, and and in very different ways. I mean, I saw uh, on your site on uh, behindthemurdercurtain.com, you have a tab that I found really interesting, recent med serial killers. So I'm assuming that since these are very recent, that these individuals did not make it into your book. That is correct, because every, maybe every six months or so, somewhere around the world, but particularly here in the United States, and unfortunately, the most recent one was at the VA in West Virginia, a nurse Mm -hmm. that killed, um, I think it was about 13 people with insulin, uh, and and she was convicted and sentenced to multiple life sentences, and she was just convicted this year. So this is not history that I'm talking about. This is current. There was recently a case in Germany uh, by the name of Niles Hogel. Niles Hogel killed, well, I was just with the detectives who did that case from Germany. They suspected about 300 people. But he was actually uh, convicted of over 100 people. They did an incredible multinational investigation on this guy. But What's not uncommon, whether it be the VA or other locations, is these people travel from one hospital to the next hospital to the next hospital. And unfortunately, when the first hospital suspects something, they never say anything to the second hospital. They're just happy that the person moved on. <laughs> wow. we, we got rid of this guy. We, we suspected wow. we thought something, but, you know, he's gone. He's out of here. So we don't really care about him anymore, okay? And remember, these people are working, almost all of them, are working at the ICU, you know, the intensive care unit, usually at that, as I hate to use this term, the graveyard shift at 3 a.m. in the, Mm -hmm. where there's not much activity going on. You know, if you've ever been on a hospital ward around 3 a.m., there's usually not that much activity going on. There's a nurse and maybe a nurse's aide. And of course, you could take that curtain and put that curtain around you and the patient, and nobody's going to really see what's going on there, okay? It's one of the scariest concepts when you break it down like that. I mean, I was recently, when I say recently, about two years ago, I got in a car accident late late at night, and... Um, you know, trusting the EMTs, trusting the people that come and pick you up. And then, you know, you're sitting there helpless um, in a hospital bed. It was, like you said, around three in the morning. And I mean, man, anything can happen in those situations. And I just find it crazy. And, and you know, finding these people and actually being able to prosecute them can't be an easy task because, like you said, so many people go into these places when they're 
barely clinging on to life in these ICU units. And then they end up, you know, dying a lot of the time and you can't blame the nurse or the doctor necessarily. So what's the process or what was the process without, you know, giving away anything really in your book? How, how would you like actually prosecute these people and, and, or like find clues essentially? Well, it is extraordinarily difficult. And this is why medical serial killers trump the traditional serial killers with the number of victims that they're responsible for. I'd say the average medical serial killer, somewhere be close to about 50 or 60 patients that they kill before they're actually caught. Okay, wow. the numbers actually range from about, from about 15 to 300, okay? And uh, why did it, why does this happen? Well, in some reasons for the way you said, because many of these patients, even if they're not in the ICU, particularly if they're at the VA, many of them are older patients and they have many underlying diseases and ailments, any of which could probably result in their death. So it's very difficult, first of all, to say that the person died as a result of some event that should not have happened because they had so many things wrong with them to begin with. In fact, when I started this and I looked in a patient's medical record at the VA, I mean, it was like this thick. And I couldn't believe that you could be alive and have this much wrong with you. And now I had to prove that they were actually murdered. I mean, they had this incredible long medical history. And this is one of the reasons, one of the reasons why Medical serial killers exist for as long as they do until they get caught. And it usually starts like this. It usually starts like this with a coworker, a nurse or, or a physician. They say, you know, every time that nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Bruce takes a week off, the death rate goes down. Mm. Does that mean that Bruce is a serial killer? No, it doesn't mean Bruce is a serial killer because maybe Bruce has the most complex, difficult patients and they're more likely to expire than, than the other patients, okay? But that's how it almost starts. But look how many people have to meet harm's way before people wake up and say, I don't get it. Every time Bruce is here, somebody is dying unexpectedly, all right? I mean, and this is why the numbers are so horrific. And nobody wants to believe, and I understand this, that a nurse or a doctor is intentionally harming people. After all, they, they took that oath, right? Yeah. They just took that Hippocratic oath. The nurses take something called the Florence Nightingale oath. It's very similar. It's the same thing. And they are dedicated. My God, the hospital that I last worked in, I mean, they were performing miracles there every day. They saved so many lives, particularly during COVID. Who's going to believe that a team of people so dedicated like that inside that team there is somebody that actually wants to intentionally harm people. It's very hard to believe. So it starts like this. It starts like, you know, every it starts with the statistics. Nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Let's take a look at the cases. Let's take a look to see if these patients should have expired when they did. And what often what happens is that if you've ever had a loved one in the hospital really ill, you know, the family knows they're probably going to expire. The nurses and doctors know they're going to expire. 
death is not unexpected, all right? But if in these particular cases, what happened was that the patients were fine. I mean, the patients almost, almost seemed to be improving. So mom and dad would go on vacation only to come back to find out that their, their loved one had passed unexpectedly. See, natural death is like if you shut off a fan and then the blades gradually slow and slow and slow and slow. That's natural death. These people died like a light bulb that's bright one minute and off the next. All right? Death is totally unexpected by the staff and by the family. And that, that's what makes a difference. Well, yeah, and some of the methods that I, I heard you citing were like, you know, uh, cardiac uh, arrest patients coming in and they're just getting too much of the right medication. Or I saw one, um, I believe it was on your website, where a woman was using bleach IVs. That might have been uh, somewhere else. Yeah, you know what? There, there have been a, a number of, uh, that's very, very unusual. Very yeah. unusual. weird. Because if you think about it, all right. So look, we talked about you have the perfect job in the perfect environment, right? Yeah. You know, and you're working alone at night, but there's even more because for one thing, look, most cops do not want to do investigations in hospitals. Cops don't become cops because they're good in chemistry and biology, all right? So they're very easily challenged by the science. Also, they don't really understand the law. What records can I get? What records can I get? What is this HIPAA thing? Mm -hmm. A subpoena? Or do I need a court order? Or do I need a subpoena that's signed by a judge? Are there some records I can get or some records that I can't get? It's very, very confusing, all right? That's one thing. And then, the, the, you know, another thing, think about it in the hospital. If a patient cries out, hey, that doctor's trying to kill me. Oh, we don't pay any attention to that. We hear that all the time in the yeah. hospital. Obviously, wow. the patient is suffering from uh, the effects of one or more of the numerous medications that he's under, all right? This is called hospital delirium. I mean, it's a real condition where people under multiple medications start to hallucinate and start to think crazy things. So if, I, if somebody says that Nurse Bruce is trying to kill me, well, we're just going to make a little notation in this file that he's suffering from the results of multiple, the multiple medications that he's on hospital delirium, all right? So even if you cry out for help, nobody's going to pay any attention to it anyway. So again, getting back to this perfect environment. So what do you do now? You got the perfect job and you got the perfect location. You smuggle in a, a gun or a knife. Well, there's no need to do that because the hospital supplies all the death-dealing chemicals you would ever need particularly on the crash cart, some of which are untraceable, even with today's modern science, believe it or not. Really? Well, so that's the thing. Did you, did you actually take a lot of time to learn chemistry and, and medicine, or do you have a knowledge no. in that? No? no, not at all. I, because one person, I don't care if you are the reincarnation of Sherlock Holmes, one investigator cannot do this case. It takes a team of people. Now, my background at the VA, I was a special agent in charge of the Office of Inspector General. I covered all the VA hospitals from West Virginia to Maine, all right? And I had five different offices that reported to me. 
The overwhelming majority of cases were white collar crime cases. I mean, there were thefts, there were embezzlements, there were frauds, there was bribery. I mean, contract fraud, a whole smorgasbord of cases to pick and choose from. Drug diversion, you know, sexual assaults. But I never had anything like this. In fact, I had never done a homicide until I got a call one day from the uh, director of psychiatry, the chief of psychiatry at the Northport VA. And she said, you're not going to believe this, but we have a doctor who's working here. And there's a news report that he spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers. Now, I didn't think that in the United States of America, you could spend time in prison for poisoning your coworkers and come out and become a physician, particularly at the VA. But boy, I was wrong. And you're talking about Swango here, correct? Talking about Swango. And wow. Exactly what happened, yeah. Let's talk about him for a second, because that is a very interesting story. He is a, he's an ex-Marine or ex-military uh, in some way. No, ex-Marine, honorable discharge, ex-Marine. Okay, uh, when he got out of the Marine Corps is when he first went to medical school. And interesting, when he was in medical school, his fellow students referred to him as double O Swango, licensed to kill. Because it seems like every time he was visiting patients, a number of them would expire unexpectedly. But nobody could actually prove that it was him. But the students were very concerned and they went to the dean of uh, the uh, medical school and they said, Dean, we don't think this guy should be a doctor. And the dean said, well, what do you know? You're only students. I'm the dean, I know. And I think he could be a doctor. He needs a little bit more training. We'll keep him a little bit longer in medical school but he'll need a little bit more training. And that's exactly what happened. He got a little bit more training and he graduated with an MD degree. And he went on to Ohio State University to do his internship. And, you know, you were speaking about an accident. So there's a young student, the name is Cynthia McGee. She gets in a car accident with another student and she's improving until she gets a visit from Michael Swango. Then she dies unexpectedly, but he doesn't get charged. The student who hit her with his car, he gets charged with vehicular homicide. But of course, he didn't kill Cynthia McGee's wanger. Wow. And they started to suspect everything at Ohio State University, but they couldn't prove it. Of course, it's very difficult to prove. We talked about it. Very difficult to prove. So he leaves because of all this suspicion, and he goes back home to his first love, which is being an EMT. Uh-huh. And because he loved the excitement of all these accidents and injuries. Sure. And he, he used to bring food in for his coworkers. And one day he brought in donuts and they were sprinkled with arsenic. And his coworkers all got sick and he called them up and asked them, tell me the symptoms. Tell me what happened. Because he wanted to relive the excitement of the poisoning first when he actually poisoned them and the second time to hear what happened with them wow so a couple of weeks later he brings in some iced tea but these emts weren't stupid they had the iced tea tested and was loaded with arsenic and the police did a really good job and they went to his home and they found these poisons and books on poisons and he gets sentenced to three years in prison for poisoning his co-workers and you would think, well, that's the end of Swango's medical career, right? Wrong. Because after three years, he comes out of prison. He's very clever. 
as you mentioned the term sociopath, well, he is a sociopath and very charming, very persuasive, started to alter all kinds of documents, change his name a little bit. And the next thing you know, he actually gets accepted to work at a VA hospital on the West Coast and things are going fine. He's actually doing a good job. Uh, and he meets a, a VA nurse and they get engaged and everything's fine until the story comes out that he had spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. And then everything goes downhill. And his fiance, she's very, very upset. They break up. And she was always getting some headaches when she was living with him. And she went home to really? West Virginia. Yeah, she went home to West Virginia. Uh, uh, to, to Virginia, I'm sorry, to Virginia where her parents lived and her headaches went away, but she was so upset about the breakup with Michael Swango that she went to the park, took out a gun and blew her brains out over the whole thing. Uh. And although the family had the body cremated, they kept a lock of her hair and we tested her hair and it was loaded with arsenic. So Swango wow. was actually poisoning his own fiance. That is incredible. That is, I mean, like, of, of I mean, th- there's almost no words to describe how someone could, I mean, three years, first of all, three years for trying to, to kill people, right? I mean, I'm not sure if these were uh, toxic amounts of arsenic. I know that, that that's a very fine line. Uh, arsenic's pretty strong, from yeah, what I understand. enough to get them sick, sick enough so he could find out to, oh, what all their symptoms was. It was like a test run, I think. And then the tea was potentially going to be that stuff that was really going to do him in. I, I think it could have been. I think and you been. you were responsible for putting uh, Swango in prison, or did, was he? That's way before I even heard the name Swango. Oh wow! Okay. I even heard the name Swango until he winds up in my neighborhood at the VA Medical Center in Northport, Long Island, and I got that phone call that I mentioned to you. Yeah. Or that I had never even heard. In fact, if you told me that the VA hired a doctor that spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers, I'd say, ha-ha, very funny. Right. It sounds like a joke. Yeah. Right. And as a matter of fact, when I got the call, I checked my calendar to make sure it wasn't April 1st and this wasn't some kind of April Fool's Day trip. <laughs> or this woman was just trying to see if I was awake at the job or something. I mean, it was incredible. So I hop in the car with one of my agents to go meet this guy, Swango, at the Northport VA. And he's the most handsome, charming guy you'd ever want to meet. I mean, if your daughter brought him home and said, hey, dad, here's Michael. He's a doctor. He's an ex-Marine. You'd go, wow, what a catch. <laughs> she brought on this handsome, and he's so charming and such a handsome guy. And... uh and he started giving me the same story that he gave everybody, that he uh, he was an ex-Marine. He got in a barroom brawl. He only did six months in jail. But the governor restored his civil rights. And here's a piece of paper from the governor saying my civil rights is restored. That's the story he gave everybody. And in fact, something very interesting. Because he came to the VA because he got hired from the Stony Brook Medical Center, who has a rotation at the VA. And he got hired to do a residency in psychiatry. So that meant he had to go in front of a board of trained psychiatrists and convince them of his story. 
convince them that he's telling the truth with that barroom brawl and the whole nine yards. This is a board of trained psychiatrists, all right? That's, fa- that's fascinating. Well, he, can I mean, he can fool just about anybody. Well, and that's part of that, that the sociopathic tendencies where they're very charming. You know, I'm thinking like Ted Bundy when you're talking about this kind of stuff, you know what I mean? But uh, uh, in the medical field, and I've been doing a lot of research on mind control um, and the, the people that really kind of set those things in. I, mean, I know you've heard of like MK Ultra and things like this, but it, it stretches back, you know, to at least the 1800s from what I uh, gathered. And the psychiatrists sometimes are very willing I'm not saying all, probably like your medical statistic where you think 99 or you feel that 99.9% are actually trying to do the right thing. There is that 0.1% where as small as that percentage is, the work that they do can really kind of counteract all that good that that field is doing. And I feel like that's a similar thing with a psychiatrist. Do you feel like they were just incompetent or do you feel like they wanted someone like this involved with VAs? Um, you know, with the veterans, because as we know, you know, unfortunately, our country doesn't treat these people um, as well as they deserve to be treated. You know, they kind of see them a lot of times as a burden, unfortunately, the veterans, that is. I think um, it was partly that and partly because Stony Brook, which is kind of remote from New York City, uh, got a lot of foreign doctors, a lot of foreign applicants, Indians and Asians. And here, quite frankly, comes a blonde-haired, blue-eyed ex-Marine, and they didn't get too many of them. Mm. So I don't know if it's just a bit of of racism or uh, maybe they just wanted to help a vet. I'm not really sure. But they don't get too many blonde-haired, blue-eyed ex-Marine applicants. And I really think that's what helped persuade them to give this guy a chance and to work at at the VA. So I think their intentions were good. I don't think they had any evil intentions at all. I think their intentions were probably honorable, but um, that resulted in him actually coming to the VA. Well, so right that, away, when you hear a Marine, an ex-Marine that's now in the medical field, you would think that he would want to take the utmost care of veterans. Totally. Totally, you would think that is that's very logical. And yeah. again, would. (laughs) Sure, sure. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, one thing about the VA, there's a lot of veterans who work at the VA. You know, a lot of veterans work at the VA. And, uh, you know, so they're they're, they're very concerned about their fellow veterans. I mean, the VA itself is a wonderful place. I mean, I, I think they do the best they can given the resources that they have, you know, but this was just an unfortunate incident. So after, you know, he, he gives me this charming story and then I start to press him a little bit and ask him for permission to search his room. And then he's not so charming anymore. Mm. And then he kind of says no and insists that I leave. And I didn't have any evidence that he committed any crimes in the Eastern District of New York. So I couldn't get a search warrant and I left. And the next thing you know, a few days later, he's gone just runs out and runs away from the VA and winds up in Zimbabwe, Africa. And when he's in Zimbabwe, Africa, he kills uh, women and children and pregnant women and attempted to murder his landlady. And uh, he's a very, very bad boy. 
And he, he was going to move on to Saudi Arabia, but he had to come back to the U.S. first to renew his passport. So he flies into Chicago and we arrest him, not for murdering anybody, because we didn't any, have any evidence at that time that he murdered anybody. We arrested him for what I like to refer to as every federal agent's favorite crime, lying to the government. If you lie <laughs> on a piece of paper to the government, if you lie when you talk to a government agency, there's a great statute that covers that. It's U.S. Code 1001, false statements to the government. We get more people on that than, than maybe anything ever. And wow. to me, and he lied on his application with that barroom brawl story. And the next thing you know, he gets sentenced to prison for lying to the government. And that gave us a window of opportunity to try and determine if he murdered any of our nation's heroes at the VA Medical Center in Northport. So how do we go about this? I told you I was a white collar crime investigator. Yeah. I don't think I could spell homicide when this thing first came to me. Okay. So my boss says, don't worry, Bruce. He said, I know you're a really good investigator, even though you haven't done homicide. But I'm going to hook you up with this Dr. Michael Baden, B-A-D-E-N. Michael Baden. Oh, wow. Yeah, we know him for sure in this in this uh, conspiracy community because he's done very high-profile autopsies, JFK. Yes, yes. Didn't he even do um, one of George Floyd's autopsies or no? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. He's done that. He's done. He's done them all. All, all. all the famous ones. He's a great guy, by the way, and a great teacher. So learning how to do this, these investigations from him was like learning physics from Albert Einstein. Yeah. He really couldn't get a better teacher. And he said, don't worry, Bruce, I'm going to teach you how to do this. This is what we're going to do. First thing we're going to do is we're going to assemble a team. Because like I said, one investigator cannot do this alone. And on this team, we're going to find doctors who are experts in chart review. In other words, they can review the chart and make a determination if it's likely this patient would have expired when they did, or did something look uh, like an, an, an external event occurred that actually caused their death. Next thing you knew, we're going to get a toxicologist, all right, because they're going to have to do the whole chemistry on this. Then we're going to sit down with a group of this, at that, that time, a relatively new profession called forensic nurses. And these are nurses that are trained in both forensics and nursing science they were phenomenal. Mm. They were really incredible, okay? And then, of course, he says, I'm going to do the, the autopsies. I said, doctor, do we need to do an autopsy? And Bond said, you know, look, Bruce, you don't ask a barber if you need a haircut, and you don't ask a medical examiner if you need an autopsy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> so he said, of course we're going to do it. After we review the records and we make a determination, we try to isolate cases where we think the deaths were suspicious just based on reviewing the charts, okay? In other words, it didn't seem like a natural death. It seemed like that light bulb going out. And we narrowed it down to about four or five cases. The next thing we had to do, we had to get a court order to exhume the body because all the people had been buried. You know, I mean, this, this was months after they had expired. And then and you have to go to the families and tell the families what's happening and, and ask them for permission, even though technically we didn't need the permission. We had a court order, but we don't want the families angry at us. We want the families on our side, you know? So we'd have to ring the doorbells and say, you know, hi, excuse me, uh, 
My name is Bruce Sackman. I'm from the Inspector General of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, we have reason to believe that your father's death at the VA may be of a suspicious nature. Can we have your permission to exhume his body from the cemetery and run tests? Imagine getting a visit like that. And how do you think you'd react to something like that? Yeah. Pretty shocking, isn't it? Yeah, it's really adding, yeah, extremely were, stressful. They were terrific. They were terrific. Mm. I mean, they, they were, some, sometimes they actually wanted to go to the exhumation. And they would say, can I be there? I want to see it. I wow. Said, yeah, of course you could come. And if they would come, our agents would bring them flowers. You know, very respectful. Very respectful to the families. Very careful, you know, with, with the coffin. Very, very careful. And then I find myself, so we're, we got, we're at the cemetery and there's a backhoe and it's digging up and we're pulling the coffin up you know, uh, from the ground. And then we take it to the medical examiner's office. We open it up and there was an autopsy. Then. And I, look, I was a white collar crime investigator. I had never done anything like this before. And I was there with Michael Bond and he showed me and, and, and taught me and he was really incredible. And he came out with the determination that these people did not die from their natural disease processes. Okay? Wow. They actually died died from something else. And we would need the toxicologist to run tests to see if there are any particular substances in the body that shouldn't be in the body. And our toxicologist said, yeah, there are two substances, you know, different ones in different bodies. One was succinylcholine, which in the hospital they call sucks. It's a paralytic. If they actually want to intubate you, put a tube down you, it paralyzes you and it has to be very carefully controlled or it could kill you, or epinephrine, which is adrenaline, which will speed up your heart. And if you shouldn't have it, you're gone. All right. Wow. I said, are we able to find these traces in this in embalmed tissue? And the lab said, yeah. You know, Bruce, there's this brand new machine out there. It's called the High Performance Liquid Chromatography Tandem Mass Spectrometer. Holy <laughs> what the hell is that? Yeah, no kidding. Oh, Bruce, you, you couldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. I'm just telling you, we could find it. We take a little sample of you know, the tissues and we run all these various tests and all that. And they came back with the finding of uh, epinephrine and succinylcholine. So now Swango is about to get out of jail and he says, oh man, I'm getting out of here on this stupid charge for lying to Bruce Sackman and I'm going to go back to... Uh, Saudi Arabia or Africa, and I'm going to keep going. I said, not so fast, Michael Swango, not so fast. First of all, we got very lucky because right around the same time he was about to get out, the U.S. had just signed an extradition treaty with Zimbabwe. So we told Michael, look, you're going to be charged with this. And if we go to trial, and even if we lose, we're just going to put you on a plane and drop you off on the tarmac in Zimbabwe, because here's an arrest warrant from the government of Zimbabwe for you. Good luck. Good luck in Zimbabwe. Boy, they were anxious to hang this guy, as you could imagine. Yeah. So he agreed to plead guilty, and he pleaded guilty to murdering three veterans at the uh, Northport VA Medical Center on Long Island. And when it came to sentencing, he actually stood at attention like an ex-Marine in front of the the judge and the judge asked him how to do it. And he said, 
I used the paralytic. He didn't mention succinylcholine. He said, I used the paralytic and I, I, and I, I killed these people. And he got sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. He's in Supermax Federal Penitentiary now. Wow. And then the judge said something I had never heard before. He says, you know, in the federal system, there's no parole. But if Congress should change the law and grant parole, your parole is denied in advance. So even if there was, wow. his parole was denied in advance. All right. And then, of course, at the sentencing, you always get the families to come up and talk. And this is really, you know, th this is really the emotional part of these things. When the family said, you know, dad served in Korea in World War II and Vietnam. He did this. He did that. Only to be killed at a VA hospital. It's very moving. Yeah. Very, very moving, you know, to hear that. But, and he didn't uh, only kill three people. Those were just the three that we that you could prove, correct? Well, this is true with every almost every serial killer around the world. Sure, sure, sure. Because many times you can't prove. As a matter of fact, there are some one or two serial killers around the world that um, have either been acquitted or the charges have dropped because they actually weren't able to prove it. But and also, it's very time-consuming and very, very expensive. And it's not going to really make a big difference in the sentencing, you know, if you got three or if you got 30, because either way, they're going away and they're, they're never coming back. But you have to really pick and choose the best cases. Now, I must say, my, my counterparts in Germany, they did a phenomenal, phenomenal job with this Niles Hogel character because they exhumed over 100 bodies in three different countries. That's insane. And it was an, just an incredible, incredible exercise they did. And also, again, credit to my German counterparts. They did something that has not been done anywhere else in the world, in the history of the world. They actually filed charges against the managers and nurse managers who suspected something and never called the police and never let the second hospital know. And those charges are pending right now. We'll see what happens. Oh, wow. Actually okay. With manslaughter. All right. They actually charged them with manslaughter because they knew and they did nothing. And they just assisted the killer to move on to another hospital without saying anything to the second hospital. We'll see what happens with that. It has never happened in the history of medical serial killers ever. This yeah, that's incredible. And it, and you started, a, 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 what do you call it, a red flag law? Or, or Inside the book, Inside Behind the Murder Curtain, one of the things, you know, we, we looked at is how can we identify these people? You know, what are the red flags? Because so many cases are so similar around the world. How can we let the staff and managers know that maybe there's an issue here that requires further investigation on their part. I mean, what are the, some of the signs, you know, what are the red flags? And in, in the book, there's the 26 red flags. And that's why I love to speak to medical professionals when, when, when I do my presentations, because it's really for them to see. Because they're the first, but I'm not going to know about these medical serial killers until some nurse or some doctor comes forward. And this is the way it usually happens. It's kind of unfortunate. It usually happens this way. You know, Bruce is on duty. The death rate goes up. All right. These patients were not expected to die. Let's go to the manager. Let's go to the manager. 
So they go to the manager. Now you're the manager of the hospital and you're having a hell of a time keeping uh, the lights on, let alone hearing about some kind of crazy problem like this, all right? And you very concerned about the reputation of your hospital. So nurses come to you and they say, you know, there's something about this nurse, Bruce, I don't know, something's not right. And then you're going to hear something like that. Well, uh, question nurse, did, did you actually see nurse Bruce harm anybody? Well, I never actually seen him harm anybody. Well, I mean, don't you think that maybe his cases are more difficult than others? Don't you think there's a, a logical reason why this is happening? I mean, you know, you're actually making serious allegations about one of your professional coworkers. By the way, let me ask you a question. Is your background so perfect? I mean, is your license up to snuff? Have you ever used designer drugs? If we drug tested you right now, are we going to find something? The only reason why I'm asking is because if you make these allegations, well, then you're sort of under investigation yourself. You know what I mean? So are, are you okay? With me? Are you prepared for that? And then there was this very interesting case that came out of Texas. All right. Now, I didn't think, again, in the United States of America, nurses could be criminally prosecuted for being a whistleblower. That is exactly what happened in a town called Kermit, Texas. It's in the oil basin. It's very, very difficult to find doctors and nurses in Kermit, Texas. In fact, the managers will tell you, you know where we have to go to find doctors and nurses? Why, we have to go all the way to the Philippines. And you know what? So if we didn't do such a great background investigation on that, well, forgive me because we can't find anybody to work here. We really can't. So these two wow. nurses, they happen to be the entire compliance department of the hospital. And they go to the management and we say, we think this doctor is a terrible doctor. We think he's harming patients. And the manager said, do you know how hard it is to find doctors here in Kermit, Texas? Why we have to go all the way to... You know what, nurses, thank you very much, but go back to your little office and, and just don't worry about anything. These nurses said, well, what the hell do we do now? We went to the management and they poo-pooed it. So the nurses said, I have an idea. Listen, let's send an anonymous letter to the state medical authorities in Texas about this doctor. He doesn't have to know it comes from us. We'll do an anonymous letter. They send an anonymous letter and it gets back to the doctor and boy, is he pissed. And he says... You know, I think these nurses are trying to ruin my reputation. So he calls the local sheriff, who happens to be one of his patients, Sheriff Robert Roberts, and he says, hey, Sheriff, you know what? I think these women are trying to intentionally harm me. I think they're committing some crimes. Check it out. And the sheriff says, don't worry, Doc, I'm on the case. And he gets a search warrant to search their hospital computers. And what does he find? He finds that they were the authors of the anonymous letter to the state. So he actually has them indicted and charged with misuse of official information for providing that information unofficially to the state, believe it or not. That's incredible. So most of the time, these people are getting caught on like little technicalities that really don't have a whole lot to do with their murders, per se, if I'm understanding you correctly. Um, it doesn't have to do with the whole... Um, you know, it has to do with suspicions. Major thank you to Special Agent Bruce Sackman. Head on over to patreon.com slash dangerousworldpodcast to hear the rest of my conversation with the author of Behind the Murder Curtain.